Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The city and the state both have crushing loads on pensions that escalate each year. And the public health imperatives of the moment have just consumed the majority of their bandwidth. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Mary Sue Barrett, former policy chief for former Mayor Richard M. Daley, who announced this week that she is stepping down after 25 years as president of the Metropolitan Planning Council. Mary Sue, we've known each other for more than 30 years. Thank you for joining us. Congratulations on a great run. Thank you, Fran. Delighted to join you. Why now? Is this one of those life-altering decisions triggered by a life-altering pandemic that prompted really all of us to do a lot of soul-searching and get in touch with what's most important in our lives? That's certainly part of the context. I think we've all been in our lives grappling with what's important to us, but I am so fortunate to have been able to do work that is meaningful to me for all these years. And for me, it was really as I was looking ahead toward this milestone of a 25th anniversary of serving an organization that's been around since the 1930s. It's 85 plus years old. I've been part of that history, but the challenges sometimes benefit by having fresh perspectives. And I know that I've got a lot of optimism and energy for the next the next act and I'm excited to pursue that. So it's really about leaving an organization that's in strong shape because of the team and the issues and the approaches which have changed dramatically in recent years for the team that's there and a new leader to move it to the next level. And so I'm excited to see what the organization can continue to do with its partners and I'll be there for a smooth transition over coming months, but I'm also excited to have the space my time in government, as well as my time running a civic organization, it's pretty intense work. So there's not a lot of time to step back and explore options. So now I get to do that. So you're 56 years old. That's too young to retire. You've oh, yeah. talked about <laughs> creating your next act, even though you're not quite sure what that will be. What is it that you're looking for? And you call yourself a problem solver, a strategy a strategist, a connector of people and ideas. Where is that needed? Where do you want to go next? So I didn't grow up in Chicago, but I've spent my entire professional career here. And so this is home. I've been fortunate to do work that's a little different than the way some some careers take you where you, where you get to go deep into one sector. I've worked across issues and across sectors 
So literally every day I get to work with government leaders, business leaders, community, change makers, philanthropy, and a part of what I have enjoyed and gotten a lot of satisfaction about is connecting the dots, bringing good information and and ideas about how to change the debate, how to change the outcome to create a better future for everyone. And equity is an overused word recently, but I think it it does a decent job of conveying that we're dissatisfied with the status quo, that we know the systems that have grown up because of politics or structures or tradition have not served us well. And a pandemic showed that. I'm passionate about the work that I've done of being able to connect the dots and be a change maker. And I would like to bring that into my next into my next challenges. And what kind of institution? I have some ideas I'm, I'm, that I'm excited about, but I'm also excited to hear hear others' ideas because we have in Chicago, as you Fran, a very rich network of organizations. For me, both in my time in government and at the Metropolitan Planning Council, I have so enjoyed being able to work on challenges that are not the same year after year. So that's the kind of environment that I would like. And to bring everything I've learned into a new challenge, I think it's going to be good for me. Let's talk about the Metropolitan Planning Council. For those who don't know what that organization does or is or tries to be, explain Mm -hmm. it for us. Sure. So our name sometimes conveys to people that we might be part of government, but we are not. We are entirely independent. So our funding doesn't come from government. And it is a group of leaders unified by their desire to make this region more competitive, more sustainable, more equitable, and more efficient region for everyone. So in in recognizing that Chicago has many strengths, right? We talk about our diversified economy, our beautiful natural assets, our people, academic institutions, you can go on and on. What's tragic is that we haven't put those pieces together. So when you think about how decisions get made, who's behind that, MPC is often in the mix, sometimes behind the scenes. You may not know that we were the one who convened the the environmentalists and the road builders to, to talk about how do you broker an infrastructure investment plan or brings together community leaders and business leaders that don't know each other, but actually have a shared interest in revitalizing some of our South and West communities. So joining forces, it takes really good data. We've put out some pivotal pieces of information that I think have continued to ripple through. The one I've been reflecting on the most recently is our cost of segregation study in 2017. And it, for the first time, put a price tag on the the impact on the regional economy that we all pay. And that has echoed back uh, even more loudly in 2020, as every institution has been grappling with that. So I think we're best understood as a change maker. And we put together ideas, people and relationships, and advocacy to get big things off of the wish list and into implementation. And it's hard work. It can be frustrating, but it's also really satisfying and the cost of segregation was how much? So the 
the top economic findings were that there was there is a four billion dollar annual lost incomes primarily to African Americans, which ripples through to an eight billion dollar annual hit to the gross regional product to the entire region. And the magnitude of that is there's many other economic development initiatives that would generate less. And here's something that's staring us in the face that we know has been a historic deficit of our city and our region. And yet we've all kind of just tolerated it. People who live further away from where the job centers are have the worst transportation. They have the worst air quality. They have the most unstable uh, housing. They may have more contaminated lead pipes. You can map just about any problem in Chicago, Fran, and the same map pops, pops up in our city and our region. And that is completely unacceptable because what it says is we're sidelining a, a significant portion of our population from success. And so that cost has only gotten greater readers. during the pandemic, right? The cost Absolutely. to those same neighborhoods. That's right. It's been exacerbated and amplified. And I think institutions are starting to respond. I give a lot of credit, for example, to the Regional Transportation Authority. In December, there was another package of support to respond to COVID-19. And part of that was for transit agencies across the U.S. And the RTA, as the entity that decides budgets for all of our transit providers, CTA, Metro, and PACE, took into account not the way it's always been distributed, because that wouldn't make sense, where so many people who are not essential workers are working from home. But those who are reliant on transit need help, need better service, need more frequent service, different surface service. And so the RTA, I just think this is a, a bright spot. They took into account those needs of those essential workers and others and distributed the dollars differently. So that's the kind of thing that gives me hope that we actually can take information and data, map both the problems of the past, but also the needs of today and make smarter decisions. And in you've the identified, end, we're all benefit. You've identified several things as unfinished business. Let's talk about each of them. Getting mm -hmm. rid of all the manic prerogative over zoning. The mayor campaigned on a promise to do that. She issued an executive order on day one, stripping yeah. aldermen of their unbridled control over licensing and permitting. But she has yet to do anything over zoning because it would require a city council vote she is destined to lose. Should she push that fight anyway, and why, and what happens if she doesn't? I'd start with grounding the conversation about aldermanic prerogative, not in political, quirky, historical point, which is which it is, but it but rather in the notion of interdependency. So when you think about every community, and this could be true for ward, it could also be true for our suburbs you need a mix of housing because the strongest economy, like think, think of a hospital, they need cafeteria workers, they need doctors. And we're all better off if people have options for living closer to work, if they choose, if that makes sense. But in so many communities, all of the affordable housing is clustered in one place and other places have more jobs or more high-end housing. And then in, in the end, we all pay a price. So when you apply that to aldermanic prerogative, 
the very reasonable standard of every place should have at least 10% affordable housing. We started that debate with the city council prior to the last mayoral and aldermanic elections. And in the course of a few months, we saw the idea of that had been locked in for so long of no aldermen will challenge each other's decisions because they don't want that to come back and haunt them. That's what has held this in place. That changed to people understanding that if there's a if there's a proposed development near a blue line CTA station that's on the way to O'Hare, a major job corridor, absolutely it needs to have a mix of affordable housing. And the debate flipped. And before the mayoral election, it ended up being that 26 aldermen signed on board to the idea of every place in the city should have 10% affordable housing. So that's the kind of um, resetting the conversation that I think would be really constructive. And yes, it's a political football for Mayor Lightfoot, but it is one that I think if we don't just talk about it as a boogeyman, but rather talk about it as, well, how will we all benefit? What if we did open up solutions where every part of the city could thrive? That's going to build our tax base instead of fighting over how we're going to pay for pensions and other out-of-control costs because we're losing population and we're losing tax base, let's flip it. Let's talk about how we can unlock potential and then invest more. So what would you like to see her do? Should she strip all the men of their control over zoning? And should she? is this a fight so important to Chicago's future that she should risk a political defeat? Again, that sort of broad stroke of stripping aldermanic control over zoning, it's just throwing salt into a wound. That's what I'm trying to recast, that this is not about, uh, aldermen have a lot of knowledge and have an important say in development efforts. But for example, we just completed a community engagement exercise with Alderwoman Haddon, who represents the Rogers Park area. There's a major parcel, the only city-owned parcel at Howard, right by the Red Line, and Ashland. And the old way of doing business for some aldermen would be developers come in with their ideas and then the community reacts. The opposite approach and the promising approach is to ask community leaders what they want and then to build that into the city's request for proposal. So whether it's zoning or development approvals, aldermen need to be part of it. But I think Mayor Lightfoot has laid the groundwork and can build with her leaders. My former colleague, Marisa Novara, is the housing commissioner and has been very thoughtful about about moving thorny issues forward, affordable housing in Woodlawn near the Obama Presidential Center. Issues that people have said, this can't be solved, which people do say about aldermanic prerogative. I think if instead of taking an approach of getting rid of aldermanic say on zoning, instead if we put some guardrails and say, there are some things where we all need to be part of the solution. Affordable housing, protecting our riverfronts, industrial policy, that's not a fiefdom. It has to be uh, a give and take and you have to be part of, you have to work within these parameters. You may know, Fran, that the city is stepping into its first citywide plan, We Will Chicago, in since the 1960s. So that also speaks to a big price that we paid, not having a strategy for where and how we wanted to grow before 
these, you know, crisis whacked us was really a costly thing. And so Chicago is trying to take steps to catch up with other cities. So instead of getting rid of old manic prerogative over zoning, which would be a big fight, you make exceptions to it and say in these three areas, affordable housing, riverfront development or whatever, that you need to have each ward has to have 10 percent or whatever. That's how you do yeah. it. Yes. And I, I the better word instead of exceptions might be guidelines so that we have a conversation together about, hey, these are things that are important to all of us. We have these assets. They are not owned by any one small part of the city. They are shared. And an alderman's say would still remain very strong, but within guidelines of this is going to be good for your neighborhood and it's going to be good for the whole. We have to make decisions with both always guiding us. Now, lead pipe replacement is yet another unfinished business thing. The mayor mm -hmm. is doing it, but ever so slowly. It's almost like a trickle. At this rate, it'll take 50 or 100 years to replace all the lead service lines that carry Lake Michigan water from water mains in the streets to Chicago homes. Should she speed it up? And if so, how should she pay for it? This is an issue where the fact that the Metropolitan Planning Council has relationships and knowledge at each of the levels of government that make decisions and all of the players that need to be part of that it is, is a real strength. Because here we have a president who is talking this week about an infrastructure major investment package. And that does not just mean transportation. It definitely includes water systems and sewer systems and airports and community investment. So we've got a really strong congressional delegation who is thinking about these issues. Senator Duckworth in the Senate it has a leadership role that specifically has jurisdiction over water. So you've got that potential where, you know, communities all over the country are grappling with this issue. Your listeners may not know that Illinois, once again, <laughs> is topping the list in, in a list that you don't want to be at the top of. We have more lead service lines than any other state in the country. In Illinois, it was required to use lead pipes in construction of homes up until 1986. MPC's analysis that we released last year was that there's at least 686,000 pipes connections between, as you say, the, the water that is piped under the street and then the, the pipe that connects it from the street to the house, and probably significantly more. Meanwhile, the Metropolitan Planning Council is engaged in some very careful discussions with all of the players, mayors and labor unions and environmentalists. That's, again, a microcosm of how we do the work we do. And so the state is taking steps um, towards uh, a package. And we're very, very pleased to work with leaders like Senator Melinda Bush and Representative Lamont Robinson to lead the, that effort. Imagine if we could align all those three things. A, a pilot, yes, small in the city of Chicago, but that's because they've had limited resources. That's targeting our lowest income, highest health stress homes. Combined with an influx of federal support and state support, we could actually turn this from a problem and, and a scary one, a costly one, and a public health threat, because no amount of lead is safe, into a job generator a small business creator, and an equity tool of unlocking a better Chicago. 
So that that is that's excitement. You can probably hear in my voice that I've tried to bring to this work is so often people see our challenges as enormous. How could you possibly solve something like that? It's going to cost so many billions. But if we recognize that it is costing a lot to not deal with it in health and other impacts, economic development being discouraged, and we see this as something that we can invest in, a little bit like the Civilian Conservation Corps of the Great Depression. How can we take something that America needs to invest in, our water systems, basic to human life, and turn it into something that will support business leaders of color and communities getting what they need? Affordable housing is another unfinished business. There's still a 120,000 unit shortage of affordable housing units in Chicago. It's driving Chicago's population decline. What needs to be done there? So we talked a, a bit earlier in the aldermanic prerogative conversation about the fact that distribution of housing and a lot of other things is not fair. My former colleague, Commissioner Marisa Novara in the city of Chicago, Kristen Faust, who heads up the Illinois Housing Development Authority and the private sector, along with the advocacy community, we've all been working together on, on a number of solutions. Sometimes on a complicated issue like affordable housing, people latch on to one idea and say, how are we gonna get that right? And is that gonna solve the problem? With housing, I'm convinced and I've learned from so many of our allies that we need to do multiple things. So we need supportive services for people exiting the justice system. When you think about individuals being, more people being released that were nonviolent detainees and others, the options for housing for those exiting our justice system are so limited. So that's a huge need. You saw the city council in Chicago deal with pilot for coach houses. That's a way for people to be able to stay in their homes and, and have a little bit of income and provide an affordable housing option. But that's not going to be the solution. We helped co-chair a task force that has just put forth a affordable requirements ordinance, which is some improvements to a tool that has not been as successful to create more housing supply in areas that are more attractive. So in and affordable housing tax credits, which is the primary tool that the federal government has long used to support affordable housing supply is completely insufficient to, to meet the demand. And we've learned once again, that a lot of those developments and those dollars go into the places where there is already a significant, a significant volume of affordable housing. That doesn't mean it's not needed there, but we need distribution of affordable supply. So the problem is really big. The numbers have been quantified. And I think that the COVID um, crisis has definitely helped us appreciate the dangers of doubling up. I'm, I'm particularly concerned about the diseased statistics in our Latinx communities, which do suffer from inadequate housing supply in a number of communities and has been a driver of, of just tragic numbers that are real people and that we can absolutely do better. So I think- what, what do you see as the biggest impediment to Chicago's comeback from the pandemic and the economic devastation that it caused? 
The housing issue that we're talking about is, is a microcosm of all of the issues. And as I'm describing these different needs on housing, one of the things that comes to mind is we have a rich network of expertise, but coming together around a consensus package has been hard. And that's the work of the Metropolitan Planning Council. So if I take it up a step and try to answer your question about recovery, that is our biggest challenge. I'm excited that the Metropolitan Planning Council is part of an effort that the Chicago Community Trust is spearheading. It's called We Rise Together. And the idea is similar to what Chicagoans saw people coming together around in the immediate response last spring. There was an emergency COVID response, 30 plus million dollars raised very quickly and deployed just for basic human needs. Now, the long work, the longer term work is in front of us. And so once again, the Chicago Community Trust is marshalling government and philanthropy and civic leaders, so many of whom know what works and just haven't been able to connect the dots and so that's exciting to me. There, there are models of a few communities. One of the ones that we've studied is the southeast side neighborhood of Pullman, where our allies at the Chicago Neighborhood Initiatives, CNI as they are known, has worked with local leaders over a decade. And every single ingredient, if you didn't do all of those, their turnaround would not have been possible. So infrastructure, attracting new employers. Obviously, they've had a huge success with Method Soap and Gotham Greens and Walmart and Whole Foods and SC Johnson. It's an amazing success story, but it's because we didn't expect a community to figure it out on their own. And we, we in, in that case, there was strong leadership and partnership to put all of the building blocks together. That's what we have to do. And with some support from our state and federal allies and the business community and philanthropy, we actually have a moment where we could do this to say- Never before has the political landscape in Illinois and Chicago changed so much. The comment true. scandal forcing out Mike Madigan, the retirement of Senate President John Culleton, the election of Chris, the election of Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Don Harmon replacing Cullerton. How are all these leaders doing? Lightfoot approaching midterm, Pritzker as he gears up for re-election. Where do we stand here with Lightfoot first and then Pritzker? I have so much empathy, having spent seven years in, in government, always as a staff person, but I was chief of policy for Mayor Daley for a number of years. And I think back of all of the elected officials I've either worked with to try to prod or to try to help and they've got really tough jobs. I do feel a lightening of the load to, to know that we have so many new leaders because they're asking different questions and they're surrounding themselves by with different advisors. So that feels, that feels promising. I do see examples where we've had collaboration across levels of government, but as I mentioned before, when we were talking about lead and water pipes and solutions, that's what has to happen. And to get the state and the city and the county administrations working together more seamly, that takes strong, strong allies. And the Metropolitan Planning Council hopes to be one of those. We also need to shore up our regional institutions so that we're 80% of the state's population and economy here in metropolitan Chicago. And yet we don't 
often enough use that powerful voice together. So there's no, there's technically no CEO of Metropolitan Chicago. We try to create that sort of mindset, but it's a del- it's a delicate piece of work. And I think each of our elected officials hopefully are learning lessons from this crisis about needing to make decisions differently. And grounding Lightfoot equity. And, but Lightfoot and Pritzker have clashed. We've seen this both behind and in front of the scenes during the pandemic, even before the pandemic, when she tried to get the state to take over Chicago pensions. Are they doing enough to cooperate, these two leaders who have their egos and strong-willed people? <laughs> our strengths are our weaknesses. For every way that we have admired the tremendous burdens that our, our public leaders have had to navigate and the tough decisions, the calls that they've had to make, those strengths also sometimes get in their way. So I do think that there have been pockets of examples where they, the city and the state have joined forces together in Washington and gotten great things done. And I know that's the work ahead that we must do on pension reform, on deployment of resources to, to achieve equity. But they also need to hear from all of us and to know that we're impatient with the status quo, that we're expecting better. I know that there are deep relationships between staff that are talking all the time. And so we help to be among the connectors of that. To Sometimes it might involve shuttle diplomacy to say, hey, there's a win-win here. And how can we uncover that? How, do, how would you describe the clashes between the two, Pritzker and Lightfoot? I I don't necessarily see it as a clash. I see it as each navigating their own pressures and dilemmas, which are largely fiscal. The city and the state both have crushing loads on pensions that escalate each year. And the public health imperatives of the moment have just consumed the majority of their bandwidth. And in the meantime, some of the longer-term efforts of working on attracting more immigrants to Illinois. We've had a huge drop-off in our immigrant population, which is so critical to supporting our our economy's growth and supporting small businesses who have just been buffered by, by the pandemic. Those are the things that they would like to be working on and haven't been able to. So this is the spring moment of hope or the light at the end of the tunnel that we are looking at a trend that is encouraging with vaccinations. We work a lot, as you've heard, on transportation. So how we get people to return to work and invest in in, uh, expansion, those, there's no flipping of a switch. This is unchartered territory. So I, I think that we've got strong leaders at every level. They need to continue to feel the pressure from groups like the Metropolitan Planning Council that we have to do better. And to achieve that better outcome is going to require a bit more coordination across across decision makers. And that's government, but it's philanthropy. It's think of all the private employers that are revisiting where they put their time and dollars to build communities. If we can put those pieces all together, Chicago has more more going for it than so many other places. And that's been exciting work for me to do as a leader of the Metropolitan Planning Council for 25 years, and I'm really excited about helping it continue to stay on track. And I know that future leaders will help 
catapult the next wave of solutions to. Before we let you go, a lightning round of a couple of quick answers. What would you like to see happen on pensions? Many who named that tying increases, say, in an income tax or other revenue sources to pension reform, I think are on the right track, and we just need to reset that debate. The ideas and the solutions are out there. The mass transit systems that haven't cut service during the pandemic, even though they're running empty, do, what should they do? Do you think they're going to come back to a five-day work week, or do they need to cut back? We need transit to be robust and growing in its ridership in order to have the kind of economy and climate and quality of life everywhere. The places that grew in jobs during the recession were the ones closest to transit. It's, it's our core strength. It's our target map for economic growth. But will people be in the office in the way they were before? No. And transit needs to adapt to that. And employers need to be part of the solution on more creative transit solutions. And adapt to that companies. how? What creative what? Companies like McDonald's that relocated a few years ago, their headquarters from Oak Brook to downtown, were thinking about giving their workers a transit option. So where companies locate, where they expand, if there's a retail outlet with multiple locations, they could actually ask their employees about reassignment. Maybe there's a place that someone could work that's closer to their home and more convenient. Other employers are subsidizing transit options. And, and we've got a new tool that we've worked with the Boston Consulting Group to help companies as they consider reopening, helping their workers with their commute. Because there's fear, there's we're out of practice. And that's something that I think could be part of a, a wave of innovation of different kinds of transportation options for people. Should there be a congestion fee? Because people are driving more I think that pricing so that people recognize the full costs is something that has promise. So in other words, a solo driver driving at a certain time of a day might, you know, like on the Jane Adams, the ad lane that was the tollway added to its system there has the capacity for that sort of variable pricing. And so we've, we're already there as a region. It hasn't, variable pricing has not been put into place yet but it was designed for that. So I think Chicago was recognized that we ought to do more to support people to make their transit commute easier and to help them pay for it. We, we could even use some of our transit money right now for a pilot to make transit uh, greatly reduced or even free for some people in 2021. I'd love to see that kind of experimentation. Why? Because I think we all need encouragement that this option is there for us and it's safe. With technology, we can even tell people about capacity of trains and, and buses. We can do a better job with safety and cleanliness and just rebuild the confidence of that. Before, if you looked at the loop statistics, about two-thirds of workers use transit to get to work. Obviously, there are far fewer people in the central business district, but a higher percentage of people are driving. If we continue that trend, we will choke. Yeah. Okay. Mary Sue Barrett, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck on your next act, whatever it may be. We will watch with uh, to find out where you star next. And thank you for your great work at the MPC for the last 25 years. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Fran. And we will see you all next week.